0: Thanks, Chris, and um, thanks for sharing your story. It was, uh, as we start a new series talking about grace, and as we start tonight in the book of Romans, which wasn't coordinated, um, it's a wonderful segue into our time together tonight. I am so glad to be back with you, and I'm grateful that you endured the brutal cold to be here. Uh, I I keep looking at the forecast, hoping that it's going to get warmer and even today, as it called for thirty degrees, I found myself standing outside in sixteen degree weather uh, doing questionnaires. How many of you were out there with us either doing questionnaires or filled out a questionnaire today? Yeah, we're still thawing, okay, so uh be gracious with us i am um, I'm, I'm so glad that you're here tonight, and if you're here for the first time, Jared's already welcomed you, but I just want to I just want to again tell you how grateful we are that you're here and uh each one of us, just as Chris shared his 180 story, each one of us has a 180 story of how um, we've been rescued and redeemed by Jesus. We're not perfect people. We have all sorts of problems, and if you hang out with us for more than a moment or two, you're gonna realize that. But we're a community of people that have decided that Jesus is the most important thing about us, and we want to know him and make him known on this campus. And so if you're just here exploring spiritual things, trying to learn more about Christianity, who God is, um, Want you to know that you're in the right place and that you're welcome to be here, and we're we're glad that you're here. So, um, and we are we're beginning a new series tonight called Habits of Grace. And really, when you read the title Habits of Grace, we want you to think about two things. You can read Habits of Grace in two ways. One, what we're talking about in this series are habits that we can develop by the grace of God. Not things that we can do on our own effort or our own strength, but the sorts of things that by God's grace we're empowered and enabled to do. So those are habits of grace, but also they're habits of grace. In that as we practice these habits, as we we exercise them, We experience God's grace afresh each time in our lives. We grow closer to Him, we experience intimacy with Him, uh, and His grace becomes new to us each day as we practice them. So there are habits that we have by grace, and there are habits that bring about grace in our lives. And tonight we're going to be talking about the habit of prayer. And uh, the reason for that is because uh, Richard Foster, in his famous book, Celebration of Discipline, says that of all the spiritual disciplines, prayer is the most central William Carey, the famous father of the modern missionary movement, said prayer, secret, fervent, believing prayer, lies at the root of all personal godliness. It's at the root of our own walk and relationship with God. In the, in the history of the Christian faith, all the way back to the 5th century, there's long been a phrase used to describe why prayer is so important. And throughout all of history, it's, it's been in Latin. It's lex orandi, lex credendi, which means the law of prayer is the law of faith. The law of prayer is the law of faith. And here's what that means. It means that as we pray, the act of praying... But then also the content, what we actually pray about, reveals what we most truly believe. What we pray about reveals what we most truly believe. And so tonight, we're going to be looking in the book of Romans. So if you brought your Bible, you want to turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8. And I'm going to have the passages uh, up here on the screen as well. So as you're turning to Romans 8, though, um, I just have to say some things about Romans 8. Because it is... Uh, sort of this high watermark in Paul's letter to the Romans. It's been called the inner sanctuary within the cathedral of Christian faith. Romans chapter 8 has been called the tree of life in the midst of the Garden of Eden. It's been called the highest peak in a range of mountains. And the reality is all of scripture is God breathed. All of it's of equal value. But Romans 8 is so rich and so dense and so powerful It's the kind of chapter that we can come back to again and again and again and learn more. Now the problem is is it's too long and it's too dense to summarize and it pains me that we can't read the whole thing. Perhaps you're grateful that we won't read the whole thing, but it pains me that we can't. But what I do want to do is I want to observe three brief observations from Romans 8. About prayer okay so three brief observations from Romans 8 about prayer and the first really has to do with the foundation of prayer what is it that makes it possible now my wife and I uh, we love the Netflix original series the most expensive TV show ever produced the crown any crown fans okay all right there's like four of you I'm so glad it's it's fantastic it's it's fantastic it's so well done Um, but it's about the life of the, of the English monarch, uh, Queen Elizabeth II, the current, currently the, the longest reigning monarch in the world. Maybe in history, perhaps. She's so old, most monarchs got killed off prematurely. But, um, but Queen Elizabeth II, okay? Um, imagine Queen Elizabeth II, okay? Here's the throne room in Buckingham Palace. Imagine you wanted to talk to Queen Elizabeth II because, she, uh, because you had a need that only she could help with only she could actually address your need, and you wanted to talk with her, how would you get an audience with her? Where would you even start? Imagine the number of things you would have to do to get face-to-face with Queen Elizabeth II. You can't just call up Buckingham Palace and ask if Liz is in, and then go in and, you know, plop down on the royal couch and have a conversation with a woman who at one time ruled over a quarter of the Earth's people, okay? This is not an easy thing to accomplish. So the reality is there are rules to these things. How do you get in and talk to the queen? You can't just go waltzing in there. There are rules and there are rules upon rules. So let's imagine, okay, you're going to follow the rules. You're going to go through the proper channels to talk to Queen Elizabeth II. To make matters worse, imagine this. Imagine that you have lived your life at war with the United Kingdom, that you have been an enemy of the state, you have, uh, you have attacked and terrorized uh, the United Kingdom and, and made war against Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II. What's the likelihood that you're walking into the throne room at Buckingham Palace? Pretty slim. You're gonna have to get by these guys, and then you're gonna have to walk by these guys, and then you've still gotta deal with these guys, okay? So, um, it's not gonna be easy, right? That's right. I have trouble taking them seriously on those hats too, but I'm, I'm quite confident that they don't, they're not to be messed with. So here's my point. I want to look at Romans 8 because throughout Paul's letter to the Romans, and Chris has helpfully, has helpfully cited some of these passages, Paul has talked about the way we have lived our lives as enemies of God in Romans 5.1, it says that we were enemies with God. In Romans 3, it says that all of us have sinned against God, that we've fallen short of his glory, that we have lived in a way contrary to his rule and his reign. But now, here in Romans 8, Paul's talking to Christians. He's talking to people who have placed their faith and trust in Christ and decided to follow him with their lives here in Romans 8, God has graciously and lovingly accomplished three things for those people. And I just want to hit them really briefly here. The first thing is, He's reconciled us to God. Romans one, uh, Romans 8, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, or it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. He says there's no more condemnation. You used to be enemies, but now you've been forgiven. You've been reconciled. You've been made right with God. You've been set free from sin and the punishment that comes with it. The second thing he says is, if you were to skim down to verse nine, he talks about how we've been empowered with God's spirit. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And the point of this is he's saying that you have been given the Holy Spirit, the very person and presence and power of God dwells in you. That same spirit enables you to pray and talk to God. That's part of what God's accomplished in Christ. And then the third thing, and I think this is probably my, my, the one that gets me most excited, is he talks about how we've been adopted into God's family in verses 14 through 16. He says, "'For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, "'Abba, Father.'" The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God if we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus. And that means that that same Holy Spirit, that because of him, because we've been adopted into God's family, we can now commune with him. That we can have a relationship with God. We can go to him in prayer. We're no longer enemies, but now we approach him as children who have a good and loving father. One New Testament scholar, Oscar Coleman, he says it like this. He says, being children and praying to our Father belong very closely together and should not be separated. Every time we pray to God our Father, we're reminded that He's adopted us as His children if we've placed our faith and trust in Christ. So... um, Three practical points here. What does this mean for us practically? And as I talk about some of these things of prayer, I want to continue uh, kind of throughout to highlight some practical things. Um, The first and perhaps the most obvious is if you're here tonight and if you haven't decided to place your faith in Christ and to follow him with your life, then the things that Paul's describing here are not yet true of you in your relationship with God. And that means maybe the first thing you need to do tonight at the beginning of a new year and a new semester is to place your faith and trust in Christ and decide to follow him. So if that's where you're at tonight, and I'm confident there are people here that are in that spot tonight, and they've said, I've not decided to follow Jesus, that's your first step in being able to develop a relationship with God through prayer. Now, the second thing is, is if you're a follower of Christ, this this means, this, this has to have influence in the way that we approach God. In the way that we approach God, this should always influence our prayers, Because that means we must always remember that we were at one time enemies, that we didn't have access to the throne room, that we have no right to enter in, but Jesus made a way for us to approach the Father, and that means we have to approach God in humility and in reverence, okay? In humility and in reverence, not callously or domestically or casually or flippantly. Okay, not even Jesus, the eternal sinless Son of God, prays to God like that. not even Prince Charles, the son of the queen, right? Let's go back here. Not even Prince Charles walks into the throne room and says, yo, big Liz, how are you doing? What's up, queenie? You know what I'm saying? He, even the son of the queen, that's right. Even the son of the queen approaches with reverence. So, <laughs> I know. You can tell I'm not British. That would be totally inappropriate, right? So... Um, <laughs> We're going to give Jared a moment to collect himself. (laughs) But think about what this means. It means that we approach God in humility and in reverence, that because of what the Father has done through the Son and the Spirit, he's made us a citizen of his kingdom. He's adopted us as members of the royal family. He's declared us to be heirs of the riches and glories of his kingdom. He's opened the doors of the throne room and escorted us in so that we could speak with him. And so we don't walk into the throne room in prayer casually or flippantly. We don't have, need to have any fear in approaching our good and loving father, but we approach him in humility and reverence, reminded that we were once enemies and now we, are, have, now we have deep need when we go to him in prayer. So we go to the Father in prayer because of what he's done for us in Christ. Maybe you're thinking, Chad, that's great, awesome, I can go to God in prayer, that's wonderful, I can cry out, Abba, Father, which, quick side note, Abba doesn't mean Daddy like maybe your pastor told you that it does. But the reality is we can go to God and Abba, Father, but maybe, maybe you're just not motivated to go to God in prayer. Maybe you just say, Chad, I just lack the motivation. What is it that would motivate you to talk to God What would compel you to get on your knees and spend time with him? And I want to say there are lots of good motivations. The Bible talks about lots of them. Fellowship with God, expressing thanksgiving to God, praising him, praising him for his character. Um, One of those isn't better than the other, but this passage, Romans 8, draws our attention to one really specific motivation. And so in 18 through 22, look at what it says here. This is Paul writing again. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the things that are broken and messed up and wrong with the world, the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation, all of creation, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. There's a lot going on here, and I just want to explain a little bit of it, because Paul has his eye on two things in this passage. He's thinking about the way the world is now, and he's thinking about the way the world will be when God is done with it. And he feels the gap between those two things. And I'm convinced that, just like me, you feel the gap between the way the world is and the way the world ought to be and will be one day, every day. What should motivate us to pray? It's the fact that the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. And we want God to change it. Think about it, every day... Every day it feels like uh, I hear you know we hear reports about um, potential war with North Korea. Every day it feels like we're hearing stories about sexual assault and exploitation of women on our campus and in our country. We read about hunger and poverty. There's religiously motivated violence by terror groups around the world, and there's what seems like intractable and hopeless political gridlock in Washington. And it's all we hear about all day, every day. Monday was MLK Day. This strong reminder that we still live in a racialized country where privileges, opportunities, rights, still run divided largely along racial lines in our country. The world is not the way it's meant to be. And so we're motivated to pray because God's creation isn't as it should be, it's broken and we need to ask him to fix it. Maybe that sounds obvious to you, but what do you do when you're confronted with the brokenness of the world. What's your first response? Because what seems most common... Not for all of you, I realize that, but what, to say, what seems very common, at least, is to hop on social media and sputter off some rant about the way the world is and how it's broken so that everybody knows how you feel, you've made your alliances known, you've demonstrated that you're informed and thoughtful and, frankly, just wonderful. Maybe you know these people, maybe they're in your newsfeed, maybe you're in their newsfeed, okay? But the reality is, here's, a, here's an alternative, why don't you talk about the problems of the world with someone who can actually do something about them? We're so quick to want to rant and scream. We want an audience to hear us. And just a brief parenthetical statement. In Matthew 6, Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is teaching about prayer, and he calls hypocrites the people who stand in public places and pray very loudly so that others hear their opinions and how great they are and how holy and righteous they are. And sometimes I wonder if social media isn't the modern-day equivalent of that. Jesus then goes on and he tells his disciples what they should do. He says they should go off alone where no one will see or know and talk to God in secret without bragging about it or even telling other people that we prayed about it. And it demonstrates a sort of trust in God because he can actually fix the problems of the world. And hear me clear, this is not a, this is not a rant against action. We need to be people of action who fight against these things, injustices and problems in the world. But what's your first instinct? I'll offer this. My wife told me I shouldn't, but I'm going to do it anyways and probably get myself in trouble. But um, this is just a personal opinion. It's not in the Bible. Um, You can take it or leave it. But my perspective is this, is that if you are burdened by some problem in the world and you haven't spent at least 30 minutes on your knees talking to God about and begging him to fix it, you haven't earned the right to rant about it on social media yet. Because the reality is, is praying to God can actually do something about it. And ranting on social media may or may not. So, the reality is I'm convinced that if we talked with God about the problems of the world as much as we talked about them on social media, we'd probably have a much greater impact. Okay, that's the end of my rant now. Sorry for that. Um, The second practical thing, prayer reveals vision, okay? Um, One of the great privileges of my job is is I get to travel and speak at lots of churches, I get to sit in lots of Sunday school classes, and I'm always fascinated by what people pray for. And I want to be really careful here, because I've never heard anything prayed for at a church that shouldn't be prayed for. I've never heard anything, you know, um, anything absurd. But, um, but what I'm often surprised by is what isn't prayed for. What's most often prayed for are things like physical healing for friends and family, financial troubles, personal struggles. And this is where I want you to hear me really clearly. Those are things we have to pray about. There are things that the Bible commands us to pray about. And if we didn't pray for them, there'd be some serious imbalance in our prayer life and in the lives of our churches. But if it's the if those are the only things we pray about, there's a serious imbalance also. Prayer reveals vision. And my fear is that sometimes we settle for a vision that's far too small. Are we praying, asking God to turn our campus and our country and our world upside down? Are we praying for the lost peoples of the world who don't know the gospel? Are we praying for the completion of the Great Commission? Are we praying that God would usher in his kingdom and his righteousness and his rule in our own day? Because the world's not the way it's supposed to be. Everybody knows it. My question is, why aren't we asking God to fix those things? Why aren't we going to Him in prayer, to make, asking Him to make it right? Because right now, at the beginning of a new semester, it's important to remember this. And I'm especially talking to you in the room who would consider yourselves leaders in this movement. We've got to remember this, that if we want to see God change this campus, and to change the lives of our friends and our family and our classmates and our professors, It's going to begin by getting on our knees and asking God to do it. There is no other starting point. So we go to the the Father in prayer because things are not the way they're supposed to be. Jesus has laid a foundation for prayer and made it possible. We're motivated inter alia by the brokenness of the world we live in. But, and this is the big question, and I think this is most often the obstacle and the hurdle that prevents us from praying. How do we think about God's answer, or sometimes non-answer, to our prayers? Have you ever prayed and prayed and prayed for something, yet God didn't respond like you wanted him to? Or maybe you, maybe you begged God to do something that he just didn't do. Have you ever cried out to God, but the result left you wondering, Maybe, does God really love me? Or maybe, deep in the recesses of your heart, you entertain the whisper maybe there's no God at all. Maybe I'm just talking to myself. Because if you've ever asked those questions, you're in good company because I have. I've been there before. And uh, with my own reluctance, um, a, friend, a friend suggested that I actually share the story. I'm a little reluctant. I, Indulge me talking about myself for a minute, which makes me extraordinarily uncomfortable. Um, but I've been there. My wife and I, my, my wife, Christina, we were married in 2005. And the first five years of our marriage were a blast, absolutely incredible. And in 2010, we decided, you know what? We're ready to, we're ready to add to the team. Um, we're ready to have children. And uh, what we would love is for God to bless us with some children. And so we bought a house, a big four bedroom house, thought we were going to fill it with kids. And when 2011 came around, a year later, we were surprised there were no kids. And what that meant for us is that we were both subjected to what felt like hundreds of unending medical tests, and the verdict from our doctors was, you both seem perfectly healthy, and we don't see any reason why you shouldn't be able to have kids. Great, it's not very helpful. And just as a quick aside, one of the things that was actually really reassuring was the number of times doctors said things like, you know, we really don't know a whole lot about how life begins. We wish we knew more, but we don't. Um, It's a reminder of where life comes from. But it left us with our only option to be to pray. And we prayed. And I've prayed nearly every day since 2010 for kids and our family, for children. Think for a moment where you were in 2010. How long ago that was. Think about what seven years is like. Almost every day. And so last fall, the fall of 2016, after six years of praying, we couldn't believe it. Christy walked in the room and she said, I'm pregnant. We were thrilled, and then eight weeks later, we lost the baby, and we were crushed. We held each other, we wept for days, our friends rallied around us, prayed for us, cared for us, but it was so painful, because it felt like our one, our one chance in six years was gone. Maybe in six more years, you know, thanks Lord, that's great. And you're thinking, Chad, this does not really motivate me to pray, and I realize that. But I share that with you because the most profound truth I think I've ever learned about prayer over those seven years, over these seven years, has, and it's become so meaningful. Honestly, it, I'm reluctant to talk about it because it won't be as meaningful to you as it is to me, and I'm reluctant to share it because it feels, it, it feels so holy. But look at look at Verse 32. This struck me over the years, and I've come back to it again and again, that Paul, talking about our good and loving Father, he says, He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And what I want you to see is the logic of that sentence. Notice that God was willing to give up his own Son, The very thing that I wanted, a child, the very thing that I was praying and begging God to give, God was willing to give his up out of love for me. And it reminded me that God's not deprived me. He's already given me the very best and most costly thing he could have ever given me, his own son. He wants good for me. And it means when our prayers go unanswered, he's not being stingy or tight-fisted by not giving me what I want. He hasn't withheld good from me. He's not being unfair to me. And it's causing me again and again to look at what he has given me and look at what it cost him. And the logic of the verse is that he's willing to give his son out of love for us. He'll graciously give us all things. And that doesn't mean that he'll give us whatever we want, but it does mean that he will give us what is good. And that's not just some cop-out. I've come back to that again and again and again. Coming back to this verse to remind myself that God, if he never gave us children, it would be part of his good and loving and gracious plan for us. Even after a miscarriage a year ago, that the truth that, that comforts me most is believing by faith that God knows what he's doing, even when it hurts, and even if I can't have what I want. And just as a brief aside too, that even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane prays that the Father would spare him the cross and his prayer goes unanswered, right? But he says, not my will, but the Father's will be done. So I share this with you for two reasons because I think it shapes our understanding of prayer in two ways. One is it provides extraordinary contentment. Even if we never get what we ask for, God's not being stingy with us. He's not been unfair. But the second reason is because it also provides motivation to continue praying, knowing that God won't deprive us of what is good. We can continue to go to our good and loving Father again and again and again. And so continue to pray is exactly what Christy and I did. And by God's grace, we're expecting a little girl on May 5th. And we're pretty excited about it. So, But here's what I want you to hear, and this, this, is, this is super important to me, because the point is not, if you pray long enough, you're guaranteed to get what you ask for. Oh no, that's, that's not what the passage tells us. The point is that Jesus is the truest and greatest answer to all of our prayer. That God's already met our deepest needs and wants in him. That he's already given us the very best thing that he could give us. He's already done more good for us than we could even think to ask him for. God's not tight-fisted. He's not stingy. He's not withholding from you. If you're in Christ, he loves you and will not deprive you of good. And he's proven it by giving his own son something incredibly dear he gave out of love for you. So I'm short on time. Let me quickly wrap up here. Practically, can you develop this habit of grace? Can you develop the habit of grace, the discipline of praying more each day for five minutes, for 10 minutes, for 30 minutes each day? Can you develop the discipline? And can you, the the added challenge is, can you do it without telling a single person about it, leaving it just between you and God? Experts say it takes 21 days on average to develop a habit or if you're slower like me, a whole month maybe. But can you pray a little more tomorrow than you did today? Can you pray a little more the day after that? I know you're thinking, Chad, I have quizzes and tests and exams and my life is full and uh, I'm I'm overwhelmed. Um, Martin Luther famously said this. He said, if I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory throughout the day. I have so much business I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. Bill Hybels, famous pastor, uh, summarized uh, Luther's statement perfectly when he said, you are too busy not to pray. You're simply too busy not to pray. You need to. In the history of Christianity is full of men and women who were godly men and women of prayer. Charles Simeon, the English Revivalist, devoted the hours from 4 to 8 in the morning to God. John Wesley spent two hours in, a day in prayer beginning at 4 in the morning. I don't know what's with 4 in the morning, but everybody seems to start at 4. It's too early for me. Francis Asbury said, I propose to rise at... Four as often as I can to spend two hours in prayer and meditation. And my close friends know I love this anecdote. I talk about it all the time. Joseph Alline, the English clergyman, rose at four in the morning for his business of praying until eight. But hear this. He said, if, if he heard other tradesmen going about their business before he was up and awake, he would exclaim, oh, how this shames me. Does my master not deserve more than theirs? Right? And those are just the men. What about the women? Julian of Norwich, famous, uh, famous for her history of prayer. Uh, she has all, she has, uh, we've got these recordings of her written prayers to God and the deep intimacy she experienced with God. The same thing with Teresa of Avila, famous women of prayer as well. None of them, and this is important, none of them started out that way. And so don't, be, don't feel defeated by those examples. I'm sure they all started out like us, five minutes a day. 10 minutes a day, maybe 30 minutes a day. Do you pray? Here's another thought. Do you pray together with your roommates, not trying to show off and see who's most spiritual or mature or most holy? But do you get together with your roommates and pray for this campus? Pray for your families, for the country, for places like Slovenia and Gateway. And if we're going to see God change our world, it's going to start with prayer. Do you pray when you wake up? Pray when you go to bed? Do you pray throughout your day? Because now, my friends, is the time to begin. And I want to challenge you to ask God to help you, because this is a habit of grace that we need His help to accomplish. He wants us to fellowship with Him, to have deep and meaningful relationship with Him, and we do that by talking with Him in prayer. Ask God to help you pray more tomorrow than you did today, and more the day after that. Because if we want to see God change our lives, in our campus, in our country, in the world, there's no other place to start. So I'm gonna lead us in prayer. I wanna ask you to bow your heads. Father, we are overwhelmed by the privilege that we have to enter into your throne room, to speak to you as a good and loving father. We thank you that you've made a way through your son, Jesus. And God, we cry out to you in prayer and ask you to fix the broken world that we live in. As Jesus prayed, Lord, we ask that your kingdom would come, that your rule and reign would be manifest on this earth. And God, we do cry out to you and ask that you would change our world, that you would make it right, that you would make your gospel go forth in power, that the great commission would advance, that men and women would hear the name of Jesus and fall in love with him, submit to him and surrender and follow him, that they might experience joy and life everlasting. God, would you use this community as we gather together, bow on our knees and ask you to work, Lord. Would you hear our cry, hear our prayer and move in our midst? God, we know that you can do things that we cannot, that we're helpless and powerless without you. We know that the, that the problems of the world, the political, the social, uh, the psychological, the economical, uh, Lord, we know that the solution to the problems of the world is your son. And God, we pray that he would be made known in our lives, in our community, on our campus, and in the world. God, pray that we would be characterized as a movement and people of prayer and that you would use our prayers to advance your purposes. And it's in your son Jesus' powerful name that we pray. Amen.